0: I'm Kirsty Gillen, and I'm Laura Farlin. We are the AHSS Digital Learning Team. Welcome to our AHSS Digital Learning Coffee Break podcast series.
1: Even if staff aren't using these tools, students may be. And I think what we'll see in the future is more of these tools coming in. When you drill down into
2: the, the feedback, if they wanted live, but they wanted short, they wanted interactive, and they wanted very much a discussion.
0: So they didn't want the one to two
2: hour live
0: didactic lectures. We are thrilled to host this conversation with Emma McAllister and Claire Thompson, two very well-respected colleagues who have a great depth and breadth of experience in the field of digital learning. They talk about significant changes they have witnessed as a result of the global pandemic and how they envisage the future of teaching and learning in higher education. Hi, I'm Emma McAllister. Was I have been a digital
1: learning developer in Queen's University for many, many years. And before that, I worked in um, the Council for uh, Curriculum Examinations and Assessment on online learning as well. Um, But I'm currently a PhD student and I am doing a PhD on learning analytics and artificial intelligence in education. I'm Claire Thompson and I'm a
2: digital education consultant at Ulster University in a central department called the Office for Digital Learning. So I've been there for a couple of years and before that I was in medical education at Queen's. So overall I've probably around 15 years in higher education in both blended and distance learning. And I suppose my key interests really are around creativity and accessibility. Over that time,
0: we're really excited to get you on to talk because we the the title of this podcast episode is intentionally digital, digital beyond the crisis, and that was something that was kind of developed through conversations with you both. And we'll just start by asking you from your experiences and, and the work that you've done over the past year or two years, what do you think are the types of things that have worked really well that you think should be taken forward and that you might take forward yourself?
1: I've seen some lectures use the time last year when everything went online, Um, I I saw lecturers who used that time that would have been traditionally used for lectures. And because it was online, they used that time really creatively and um, they used the online contact for a lot of interaction and um, collaborative work with students. I suppose we would normally call this uh, flipped teaching or the flipped classroom, Um, but sometimes I think that some of these terms that we use in educational technology really put people off and there's a lot of buzzwords around. So I was trying to avoid using that term. Um, But my experience last year was actually as a student, I was uh, auditing a module from the School of Law and the lecturer on the module, what she had done was she would produce a number of case studies about a particular topic that we're gonna be covering. And those would be put up a week before we would go to the the class. And uh, so we would review those case studies ahead of the class. And then when we got into the class, which was done online via Teams, uh, she would uh, discuss some of the key things that had come up. But then she would put us pretty quickly into groups to discuss the case studies amongst ourselves. And I think um, because... The groups of students, it was a a module where you had some law students, some computer science students, and some students from other backgrounds as well. So it was very interdisciplinary. So those discussions were always really interesting. And, you know, you were constantly being asked to look at something from a different perspective. And I got so much out of those discussions. I find it really interesting. And I have to admit, Unfortunately, you know, sometimes I didn't always do the pre-reading. I didn't always do the, uh, what I was supposed to do before the class. But even when I went to the class, even when I hadn't done that pre-reading, I still got so much out of the discussions. And then I would go back to the material that the lecturer had done beforehand. Um, I also have experience, because I taught on a module last year as well, um, online and I, I tried to use flipped teaching as the, the method uh, for, or the mode of delivery for the module. And um, and I kind of chickened out halfway through. <laughs> so I <laughs> just want to say this for any mm-hmm. lecturers that maybe tried flipped teaching mm-hmm. and it didn't work so well for them. I also came across that. So I, you know, I pre- prepared all these materials and the day before the, uh, the students were supposed to look at beforehand and the day before class, One of the students got in touch and said, I can't access any of the stuff that you've put online. So I sort of panicked and then ended up going over the same material again in the class. Um, But, you know, in reality, all the other students had actually read the material. So it was just, you know, there's an an element of having the confidence to Mm -hmm. let the students do it or not let them do it, which Mm -hmm. is can be difficult, you know, if you don't have as much lecturing experience or teaching experience, that can be something
0: quite scary to do. Or or even those who have had years of experience, I think it's, if it is a different strategy, that flipped classroom does take confidence and it takes persistence sometimes and things will go wrong but uh, uh, you know as you had a plan b I think you know it's good to have a plan b as well
1: yeah absolutely I think it was reassuring to me then when I experienced it as a student that even if I hadn't done the work Mm. it wasn't that I wasn't I I was still getting something out of it yeah you know and it made me more motivated to go back and review the stuff that I was supposed to have done um (laughs) so I think I would probably be more confident in using that type of approach this year and I would echo that from both sides so
2: previously when I was doing it in a blended environment and we did it it very much takes the buy-in from the whole course team as to the concept of what we're calling flipped learning here so Whenever they first started it, they just weren't sure. The students weren't doing it. They'd come to the tutorial. Questions were asked. No, I didn't look. And then they went back and played the videos and played the resources, lost that valuable time. But the ones who stuck with it and said, well, you should have watched it. Let's just keep talking. And that person then was just left looking like they hadn't known anything compared to the others in the class. And those ones very quickly realized they had to do it. And then it really became a rich experience. So it it was, like Emma said, it's sticking with it and just saying, no, we're not actually going to use this time to go over what should have been done. This is the time to go over the the sticking points, to go into the actual, the details, to go over the queries. And that's, that's how it works. So certainly that was an awareness raising almost within a, Mm -hmm. a course team back then and, Recently then, institutionally, with regards to the pandemic, we would have seen um, traditionally from the DISC Digital Insights that students were asking for recorded lectures, but that wasn't something that we did. And then obviously, once we did the pandemic, that was very much part of it. It was a recording of lectures and then the live sessions as well, if that was possible. And it came through that when we warned people that maybe not everybody could come to live sessions, and that the flipped was maybe the better way of doing it, that the students really did want the live sessions. And we thought, oh, we've been telling everyone the wrong thing for all these months. We've been warning people about digital poverty and about all the issues. But when you drill down into the the feedback, they wanted live, but they wanted short, they wanted interactive, and they wanted very much a discussion. So they didn't want the one to two hour live didactic lectures. So again, it's just trying to get underneath this terminology and the perception. So the short theory based, record it, put it in the VLE and then have the, the richness then of those conversations and just being able to chat and whether that's in the chat window or on the microphone. So, yeah, so that's something that definitely I can't see us going back completely on. Mm-hmm.
1: for the future yeah.
2: what do you think may change as a result of what we've been through um with the shift to digital
1: well i think one thing that is changing and probably has been changing for the last couple of years but we've really seen it evolve very quickly in the last and in, in, uh, during the pandemic is the concept of contact time mm-hmm. so for many universities um how you divide up or how you resource different courses and, um, and get people to work on things is, uh, you say you have X amount of contact hours with students on this course. And traditionally we think of that contact time as you are in a room with the students and that's all that counts as contact time. And I think all of us have um, experienced in the past year that contact time when you're teaching on a blended or an online course is very different. It might involve things like participating in a discussion forum. So the students might not be on the discussion forum at the same time you are, but you're maybe spending 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes more answering their questions on there. you may be making yourself available over Teams for um, virtual office hours. Um, all of those things, I think, are contact time, but we wouldn't have tra- traditionally have thought of those things as contact time before. So I think we have to change that idea so that people are people's time is being recognised. The time that they're spending with students and supporting students is being recognised. And another thing, we're going to come back to this, I think, probably later in the the discussion, but um, what we've seen in the past year as well is that traditionally we think of contact time as just being between the the lecturers and the students or the tutor and the students. But I think more, because it went online, more of the support teams from schools have also been involved in helping to provide online maybe not the teaching, but setting up um, forums for teaching, um, making sure that they're keeping in touch with the students, that the students know what's expected of them. So also recognising that there's a significant amount of contact with the students from other people in schools that wouldn't traditionally be thought of as those Mm -hmm. first-line contact
0: people. That's a really good point. And I wonder, has it actually helped to kind of give that visibility across the board for academic and support staff and administrative staff when there is a kind of a central area for you know for example in in queens and in, in in our faculty we have school wide canvas modules now which we maybe didn't have in the past but it was a decision made because information was easier transferred and it was a one central place and Maybe that's been a positive thing where now everybody has a collective visibility of of the, the more of the student journey, maybe.
1: Especially when students maybe aren't going into the schools, they're not seeing the people here at the reception area. They're not, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's those kind of school wide courses give you the opportunity to introduce them to all of the people that work there and um, make them feel part of a school or the university, Um, it's really important, I think.
2: And, And I'm actually going to widen that even further because I think we need, even as a society, to rethink that contact time. Like just having all of us doubling our workload and doing so much for the students and then having the media and parents consider that a lecture was contact time. And that universities weren't stepping up, universities weren't teaching, universities weren't providing um, that experience to the students. So I think we all need to work really hard. And again, it's back to the terminology that, you know, using the word lecture is just something that everybody thinks is higher education. Everybody thinks that's what it's all about. So we we definitely need a kind of better clarity, whether it's uh, parents, senior management, and to when it, because often when those instructions are coming down from the top, and that's where everybody at school level or faculty is taking the lead from, that if there are misperception about things like that, that's really important because then people fall back onto the structures that we would have done before and um, we moved online. So, yeah, I think we definitely need a, a better
0: understanding of contact time. Emma, because you're studying your mm-hmm. PhD at the minute mm-hmm. maybe you explain a little bit about the topic that you're that you're studying and if there's any kind of insight into how you see things changing in the future um society wide or with teaching and learning
1: yeah I, I've been looking into learning analytics and and artificial intelligence and their use in education and there's an awful lot of you know there's big claims, there's money to be made in it. So there's big claims made about a lot of these technologies. Um, but saying that, you know, I think we're getting to a point where we're definitely going to see some of the artificial intelligence tools becoming more mainstream. If they're not being, so when I say mainstream, I would say a lot of students might be using some of those tools already. Like, for example, Grammarly, um, and there's other, there are other. What do they say on the BBC when they mention something like that? There's other products available, but you know Grammarly uses artificial intelligence to give writing tips, uh, to students about their tone and grammar and spelling. And do you know it's 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 a great tool. It's a great tool, and I'm sure loads of students are using it. So even if you as a even if staff aren't using the, these tools, students may be. Mm-hmm and i think what we'll see in the future is more of these tools coming in um so there might be more tools used to mark essays um and uh, learn analytics as well i mean it depends a uh, bit of a query over this but you know the the aim of uh, a lot of companies that would be producing these things is to get to a point where Students can get instant feedback on how they're progressing, and um, they can use that feedback to um, improve their outcomes. And that staff and universities can also use the um, data to identify people who need more support. So that's the idea. I think we're we're probably away from, we're probably some way from that at the minute, but. I think we're gonna see more of it in the next few years. And I think um, one of the things that the pandemic brought to the fore was that people were seeing more and more how different tools that they were using were asking for access to their data. And some people didn't really care and they would just say, yes, I agree. But, you know, we did have staff and students who would say, I'm not happy with this. Who's using my data? Why do they need this information? And in America, you got a lot of cases where they were using things like online um, proctoring tools for, you know, invigilating examinations. You got a lot of kickback from students that did not want to use these tools at all. So, I think in the future, we're going to have to um, help people um, navigate those data privacy and data governance issues and do so in a way that supports them and protects our students, protects our staff. We're going to have to come up with ways that people can uh, be responsible in what they're asking their students to sign up to.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And people will need advice to that. do that. That is really, it's really complicated stuff. We're not right. all, you know, legal practitioners. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, coming up with institution-wide or even, you know, UK regional-wide policies around this would be really helpful there. And it,
2: it's about that balance, it's sort of the tech for good and tech for evil. But it, it's also then in our roles such a difficult balance to walk between innovation and experimentation, where people are really keen, they want to try new things, want to do different things. And then us trying to say that's brilliant. But have you thought about where their data is? Do you know where that product is coming from? What information are they actually asking and trying to get that line between institutional products that we have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy getting the legal, getting the GDPR and making sure that everything is good. And how then that complexity is so tight for the students that their journey is smoother because once they sign in, that they know where they are, they know what works. So it, it's it's going to be a very difficult area, I think, coming up in the next few years to kind of work a whole those things out and to not kind of quell the creativity and the innovation that people are curious because essentially we want to be curious about technology. It's why we're here. It's what brought us into the space because we like things that do different things and try different things and just a bit of fun I suppose at the end of the day. So yeah, it's going to be a very interesting space.
0: Also, it's going to be it's going to be difficult uh, in terms of you don't want
2: to scare staff with this kind of information. But at the same time, you do need to make them aware and just sort of how best to approach it. So, yeah, just like anything, anything new that comes in, it is quite scary until they do understand it. And I think just just bringing up the ethical and being honest about the ethical use of educational technology. We spent 20 years of everybody not really even giving it a thought and now we're trying to say well you know ethics has a big part to play in this. We have to be careful and we have to we have to ask who's
1: making money from our students data. And everybody it's difficult because everybody has a different sense of everybody's concept of what infringes their privacy is always slightly different. So you know it's it's very hard to um apart from saying this company meets GDPR regulations apart from that very sort of legalistic framework that you're using it's it's very hard to come up with a policy that will satisfy everyone within a group mm-hmm. in terms of their privacy preferences
0: what what do you think um is needed to maintain or to support staff and um, to continue The use of digital?
1: I think it's important to recognize all the different people that are involved in setting up online or blended teaching. So we talked about it earlier about the the support teams within schools and um, various central teams that were involved in making sure these online courses were happening. So I think recognizing that input from the various staff in the schools is really important and making sure that those staff and our teaching staff as well are supported in developing the sorts of digital skills that they'll they'll need. Yeah, and I think that's something that we
2: really weren't expecting probably to come out of the pandemic. So we were as an academic-facing department, although we do have a help desk that students come through to as well. So there is just us centrally and um then we realized and when the pandemic hit just how many people were coming through from those other professional services and it really really broke down those silos and we all were having conversations and learning from each other and really working together for the students and you know there's so many amazing things that people were doing now um, creating award ceremonies for students and pulling videos together but You know, the library were doing incredible work with um, how they were rolling out their online workshops and drop-ins. So very, very much we can see that we hopefully will have a better visibility and we will be working with other people a lot more. So it's a lot more of a collaboration, including the student union. So they were amazing as well. Just those contacts and being able to continually go back and get the student view and and getting what they needed directly. And also probably then I think one of the key things that has come out has been that accessibility need and that accessibility isn't for disabled students. Accessibility is for everyone. And that includes our staff. And I think that's something that we very much role modeled very intentionally um, throughout the pandemic. So all of our materials are available in multiple formats. We have live, we have text, we have recorded videos, we have short recorded videos, we have the webinar recordings, all of the videos are captioned. So it's very much us trying to say, these are the things we're doing for your benefit because we know that you're carers, we know that you're trying to juggle several jobs as well as um, everything else and the pandemic. So you need different needs. And students are exactly the same. There's just no stereotype student persona anymore. And I think that's something that we've really come out, that that continued need for training is such a spectrum. People have zero digital skills, whether they're a staff or student, and they have advanced skills. And we need to flexibly and openly and transparently be able to deal with all of that, I think, continually. Because, you know, we've learned all of us and we know what we were doing have learned so much in such a short space of time it's been incredible and you get to grips with one thing and then the features change up so it really is that dynamic and and, and being open with staff about that it's like look this isn't a static thing what we know today is going to be different tomorrow and you just you got to kind of roll with it and not not get stressed or kind of locked into the one bit about it which is the hard thing I think but also if we are transparent about it and just say look we're we're all doing this we learn we talk to you and you tell us things that we didn't even realize that was the particular way that piece of software worked so
1: yeah definitely evolving and dynamic. I think even um, in Queen's say there's there's Sections on the website in Queens that explains to them what Queens Online is and explains to them what Canvas is and explains to them what QSIS is, but I don't think we have that for staff. So if you are a new member of staff, I don't know. I mean, you just you're just relying on people to tell you what you need to use. There's and I feel like you know that's that's not supporting people who are new to the organisation and it, it because. They have to find out for themselves what the digital skills are that they will need. Um, So even if we could, when people are joining us, say we use Canvas for this, we use Teams for that, um, so that they can at least prepare themselves and find out the information before they're told about it, before maybe the day before they start teaching. (laughs) Hopefully that would never happen. But, you know, I think that we give students more information than we give new staff about digital digital things and you know
0: we should treat new staff the same as new students in that regard I think. Now we're getting to a stage where new staff coming in have maybe had very different online or digital teaching experiences possibly using the same platforms but with different nuances and you know that I think that's also a good opportunity for for learning from their experiences as well and having a a space for that learning to be disseminated and developed and shared as well is is also important I think and I think it's all about sharing collaborating as you said Claire you know that that aspect has been so so important just from the last year where we're now we're now at a stage where we can do that more flexibly and you know we can invite but you from other institutions and have, have this podcast and we're doing this virtually, you know, even things like that, we wouldn't have necessarily tried that before. So, yeah, we're all, we're all kind of learning. We're all kind of trying new things and collaborating while doing it. That's true. I mean, I know that um, when I would have been working um,
1: uh, in the digital developer role, I would have learned so much. See when you would have a new member of staff that's come from a different university, say, you know, Birmingham University or wherever. And, you know, just chatting to people about, oh, have you used this? And and they would say, yeah, we used it for this purpose. And I know, I know these tools, but it just hadn't occurred to me that it could be used in that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, having that conversations with other institutions, other ple- people in other places, can be really really helpful you know it might not be the best practice but it might be great um, ideas for trying things different ways and that's probably something that we need to learn how to tap
2: into better because you you're saying there that you talk to someone new and that's a very clear route from them to you but we know how much really exciting work is going on out there but because they're the people not coming to us, Mm -hmm. then that's where it's really hard to get that shared experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that these virtual events will be a good way for hopefully to try and get to those people who are doing the good work, doing the innovative stuff to actually hear their stories because they don't necessarily come to a support department for advice because they're they're
0: just doing it so well. It was wonderful to catch up with Emma and Claire and we want to thank them for their time. Many of the themes they addressed in this episode are discussed further in some of the AHSS Connected Learning events. Recordings, follow-up resources and discussion can be found on our dedicated Canvas training module, of which you can find the link to in the podcast notes. If you would like to be involved in any future podcast episodes, then please do not hesitate to contact us at ahss.elearning at